Well, if you have a Bible with you, uh, and I hope that you do, you can turn with me to John chapter 2. That's where we, where we were last week, where you'll be this week. And this is a, a great little section of Scripture. It might be a familiar one. Chances are it is. But one of the things we're going to see in it is, is Jesus acting in a way that, that might be surprising or might be unexpected. And so as we jump in, in, in chapter 2, there, there are two main stories. Last week, last week, we looked at the first main story where, where Jesus and his disciples uh, were invited to a wedding and his, his mom was there as well. So it was probably a, a family friend or maybe even a relative's wedding that he was at in, in the small town of Cana. And we saw him turn water into wine. And we saw that this wasn't just a, a gift of provision. This was so much more than that. Jesus was talking about ushering in a new wine, a new kingdom. And just as a, a bit of an FYI, all of our messages wind up uh, on our website, uh, on Spotify as well as our podcast if you want to head there too. Last week we saw Jesus' mother play a role in this story as well. She came to him and said, hey, listen, they're out of wine. And so Jesus took water. He, filled these, he had people fill these ceremonial jars that, that were hundreds of gallons, 750 liters or so uh, of water, filled right to the brim, and he turned it into wine. And not just kind of wine, but the best wine ever. This week, we move from small town Cana to the major city of Jerusalem. And we see Jesus go into his father's house, into the temple, and instead of being at a, a wedding that is a relatively common event, a really super significant event, but relatively common, people got married, you know, pretty often. Now he's coming to the temple in the middle of the Passover. This once-a-year feast where people came from all over the place. And again, he's going to see something broken, and he's going to restore it. He's going to see in the temple something corrupted, and he's going to make it holy again, like it's supposed to be. So let me read for us John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. So making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, it's, it's interesting that if we look at the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus clearing the temple right near the end of his public ministry. John actually really highlights Passover in his gospel. We see two or three Passover instances in John, which, if Jesus was teaching for three years, he probably went through three Passovers. But the other gospels kind of have Jesus clearing the temple at the end, whereas John has it at the beginning. 
Now, some might come and say, this is a contradiction, so we shouldn't trust our Bibles. These guys couldn't get it right. Let's throw the whole thing out. But scholars note that there are a few things potentially going on here. First, again, there's a distinct possibility that Jesus actually had multiple, like two, clearing the temple events. Again, we know that he lived and taught through multiple Passovers. But one of the ways we can come to this conclusion is that John does place it at the beginning. And so when he goes and he throws the tables and he drives the animals out of the temple, Jesus does, what do the leaders say? They say, what authority, what reason are you doing this? Who do you think you are kind of thing? Whereas in the synoptics, at the end of his ministry, we read that they go away and plot how to kill him. Clearly something's changed. Their perception of who Jesus is has changed. And so John is giving us this instance in, in probably the beginning, obviously the beginning of his ministry. And so the Jews, the leaders are still trying to figure out who he is, what all this is going on for. But maybe... More importantly, even than that, John, by highlighting this at the beginning of his ministry, really wants us to read the rest of his gospel through the lens of chapter 2. First, looking at the water turned to wine and Jesus ushering in this new kingdom, him taking the, the purification rites of Judaism and turning them into something new. And then also this idea of the temple being destroyed and raised. See, these are two really significant images that keep going through the gospel here, so we, we want to continue to see them. They'll shape how we see the rest of the gospel of John, and we'll see the cross and the resurrection through the wine, through the temple being broken. And so John wants us to see this early and read the rest of his gospel with those things in mind. So the wine ultimately points us forward to Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross. And today, dealing with the temple, we'll see Jesus pointing us to his own body as the new and better temple that is raised up. And so I hope you see this is really deliberate by John to start this gospel, of course, in chapter one, the way he did saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's what I'm going to prove to you by these words. And now in chapter two, say, okay, as we read these 20 some chapters, frame everything you see by this. This is important. Watch for wine, watch for temple, watch for these ideas. And I think that's too why John closes this passage, verse 22, with that sort of editorial note and says, listen, when the disciples look back, they believed the scripture. They understood the word. They didn't get it at the time either, but they get it at the end. So let's start digging in a little bit more. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went to Jerusalem. We need to, of course, stop here again for a minute. Remember that the Passover is this annual celebration that the Jews had where every year they would gather in Jerusalem and remember God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. It was especially to remember that, that when they were in Egypt, they were told to, to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and your homes will be passed over and rescued. And that, that sacrificial lamb will save the firstborn son in your family. That's really important that we remember that's what Passover is about. We've talked about that a few times in the last couple of weeks. And when we take communion, the second Sunday of, of the month is our rhythm here at Trinity. We are remembering Jesus saying, listen, I am the sacrificial lamb. And my blood was shed for you. But as well for us to really grasp everything that's going on here, we need to, to understand and be really clear about what the temple means. 
Now, we probably all have ideas. When you hear the word temple, you probably think of something. Maybe you, you think of a giant building that's been constructed close by. Maybe you think of just a, a holy place. Maybe you think of, you know, the maps and pictures in the back of your Bible. It has this, this really grand building. But it's so much more than that when we talk about temple. Because the Bible is filled with, with temple imagery right from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And so we're going to do a little biblical theology here. That means we're going to take an idea and try and trace it through the whole Bible and kind of get a a bit of a 30,000-foot view of what it means. See, the the very first temple in the Bible was the Garden of Eden back in the beginning of Genesis. This idea of temple in the Bible is, as one writer says, where heaven and earth intersect, when God and people meet. It's where God dwells with humanity. That's the idea behind temple in the Bible. So you can see this is way bigger than just a building in Jerusalem. It's where heaven and earth come together. It's where God meets his people. It's the dwelling place of God on earth. Again, the very first temple is the Garden of Eden that God makes because he was there. He walked in the garden with us. But then because of humanity's rebellion against God, he, he drives them out of the temple. Interesting language there. Hang on to those words as we continue. Then if you remember, a few weeks ago, we we talked about Jacob and his vision. How he had this this vision of the Lord and and this this dream or vision of of a ladder or a staircase from heaven to earth and the angels were coming and going and it was this place where where heaven met earth again. That's kind of a, a temple experience where Jacob experienced the presence of God and he named that place Bethel, which means in Hebrew, the house of God. So it's another sort of temple moment. There's lots of examples like this through scripture. You're probably familiar with some of them too. Moses sees the burning bush in in Exodus, and God says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, you're in my dwelling place. There's a a pillar of fire that led the Hebrews through the desert. There was the the portable temple, the tabernacle that Moses was given instructions on how to make and how to set up any time the Israelites stopped in their journey. It was where God dwelt in the camp, God tabernacled with them. Eventually, uh, through David, God gave plans for a physical big temple. Solomon built it, the first temple in Jerusalem. But then again, because of Israel's rebellion, they were driven out of the land and that temple was destroyed. You may know that as the the exile to Babylon. And then a couple hundred years later, Herod builds another temple. This is the one we're reading about, talking about today. And once again, we're going to see that this temple will be destroyed. And we know that it was destroyed in the first century. So when we read temple, there's a lot going on. Verse 14. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Something really important for us to note, and I I know that... when I was growing up, we once kind of read this text, and, and then in the back of the church, there was a place where they were selling uh, these things that had wheels, and there was like a tape that went from one side to the other, and you could put them in this little thing, and it would play the sermons back, right? Uh, cassettes. Um, and, and I remember um, having a discussion, I think it was with my parents, and they were saying, how, how can we sell things in church? Jesus flipped the tables because of that. But that's not, what's, that's not what he's talking about here. It was really important that all these things listed, the sheep, the oxen, the pigeons, the money changers, they were an important part of 
what needed to be there. They had to be there. See, again, once a year for the Passover, people would travel a long way to come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And so it was something they needed was to be able to get those sacrifices. They did this to remember, again, all that God had done for them. They offered up the life of another. They offered up the life of an animal as payment for their own sins. Now, in my 21st century, uh, maybe, you know, we love animals here in the Bow Valley, talking about animal sacrifice is just so foreign for us. But here's how I appreciate how one pastor explained this. See, the Jews, when they came to the temple, when they came to Passover, for their whole lives, they'd been growing up knowing that, that life was in the blood. Your life was in your blood. The, and the giver of life was God. And so when they rebelled against God, when, when we rebel against God, the giver of life, a life must be taken in order to, to pay for those sins, in order for those sins to be forgiven. And so this is what they were doing once a year. They would come and they would believe and they understood that all their sin was before God. God knew they had sinned. God knew there was sin in their life. And so they came and they asked for forgiveness for their sins and they knew that that forgiveness came through the life of another. And so they needed the animals for that. Now maybe as you're hearing that, you're starting to connect the dots in your mind and understand that these sacrifices were a foreshadowing of what Jesus was about to do on our behalf. But ultimately, there's, there's nothing wrong that there were animals present at the temple site. And when travelers came too, they needed to exchange their money. They came from all over the place. Just like if we travel down, you know, south of the 49th, we need to exchange our money. For some reason, they don't accept our money down there. If you go anywhere else, you, you need to exchange money. So that's not the problem. But the problem is the where and the how these things were taking place. These things were happening in the wrong place, and the people that were organizing these booths, this animal sales, the bartering and the money changing, were happening with wrong motives. Again, notice in verse 14 how it starts. It says, in the temple, Jesus found. This is happening in the court of the Gentiles, a, a, a big court, big space within the temple walls, and that's the problem. See, this space was supposed to be a, a, an area for people to come and, and be quiet before the Lord, where they would come and, and listen to hear from the Lord, to enter into worship, to, to prepare their hearts to meet with God. Remember, temple is where heaven and earth meet. It's where we connect with the Lord, right? So imagine this with me then. You've got this space. You've got this temple space, this court where you're supposed to come and interact with the Lord, to be quiet, to worship, to, to meditate on his word. And it's filled with animals. I suspect these animals probably didn't smell so great. I suspect if they were, you know, caged somehow or kept together somehow, the animals probably weren't so happy about that. So they were probably making noise and then the people were trying to get in and barter and exchange and all these things, it would have been chaos. Chaos. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a market in somewhere like, like Africa or Asia where, where bartering happens or, and, and it's just busy and it's chaos and there's, there's noise. Another picture I had in my mind thinking about this is like, uh, as you maybe see in the movies or on the news, the, the trading floor at, in New York or Toronto or something when the bell rings and it's just chaos. Maybe it's Boxing Day shopping at West Edmonton Mall or Chinook Center or Cross Iron Mills or something, right? 
How easy would it be to walk into the middle of that trading floor, to walk into the center of Cross Iron Mills on Boxing Day and quiet your heart to hear from the Lord? Impossible, right? Impossible. It's also, again, important that, that this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. These were, were non-Jewish people who had in some way interacted and experienced Israel's God, Yahweh, and they wanted to follow him. They had converted to Judaism, even though they weren't, um, gene- by genealogy, Jewish. This court of the Gentiles was the place where, where all nations were invited to be with God. See, it's always been God's story to draw all nations to himself. One writer says this was the court of the Gentiles was in the best possible way the main evangelism strategy for Israel. Come to the temple. Come to this court. We've got this space for you, this court of the Gentiles. Come see our God. Come be with our God. Come be in the presence of our God. But it was now filled with animals, chaos, bartering. So Jesus is really angry about this. Not only is this a place that's supposed to be reserved for prayer and and meeting with God, and it's being completely corrupted by the noise and the chaos, but the religious leaders there at the time were also making quite a bit of money off of these things, and so they were inviting more of it and more of it so they can gain more money. And he's mad because it's a place that's supposed to be where everyone can come and meet God in the place where he dwells. Where, where everyone can come and have access to the creator God of the universe, but it's been corrupted by sin. It's important that we see Jesus' emotion and passion in these verses. It's also important that we recognize that he's fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament hundreds of years ago. The prophet Malachi wrote this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me, foreshadowing John the Baptist. He says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There's Jesus. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, And he will purify the sons of Levi. That's the priests that were supposed to lead people towards the Lord. He will refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. Saying, my chosen one's going to come. He's going to fix this. Another prophet, Zechariah, also talked about a day when the nations would come and worship in Jerusalem. In Zechariah 14, 21, he said, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And so in this text, we're seeing Jesus fulfill those ancient prophecies. He's, he's coming, he's cleansing, he's refining, he's getting rid of the traitors, putting them outside where they should be. He's getting the temple back to what it's supposed to be. Now imagine in your mind this happening. Jesus is, is so upset about what he's saying. It's, it's chaos, right? There's animals, there's birds, there's money changers, there's people yelling at each other. There's trying to, they're trying to do their thing. He's so mad that he fashions a whip from cords. He wouldn't have been able to bring a whip with him, obviously. So he found some rope or something that was, had maybe tied the pens shut, fashioned into a whip, and started driving the animals out. It would have been like you know, a stampede out the door with these animals. Then he starts flipping tables. I love flipping tables, Jesus. That's, I, like, I like that. Remember, though, where we'd just come from a few days ago? 
Jesus' first miracle in Cana, how, how present was he there? He wasn't at all, right? He was on the side and just said, okay, go fill those, take it there, and he was totally in the background. Now he's taking a step forward and he's flipping tables. No one is, is missing what's happening in the temple on this day. They might have missed it at the wedding. The guests may not have noticed even that they ran out of wine. Maybe Mary came stealthily and said, Jesus, we've got a problem. And he fixed it before anyone really noticed. But today, everybody notices what he's doing. Verse 15. Making whip out of cords, he drove the animals out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So often we think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as just sort of this kind of long-haired hipster always talking in calming, pear-shaped tones and, and never really upset about anything and just know if you're good, I'm good, and if I'm good, you're good, and, and never causing a ruckus. But this is Jesus as well, making a whip of cords, driving people and animals out of the temple. We need to remember flipping tables, Jesus. He's strong. Remember, he grew up a carpenter, so he would have been well put together. He would have been strong, and he's demonstrating his strength here. And he is angry at something. He's angry at sin. He's angry at the perversion of what's going on in the temple. Verse 15, carrying on. And Jesus poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold the pigeons, he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So yes, of course, Jesus is the true and better lamb who was slain for us. But Jesus is also the ferocious lion of Judah. As we read through, as one reads through C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, we see him masterfully knit these two things together, the lamb and the lion in the image of Aslan as well. See, here's the thing. Jesus is serious about this. He's not fooling around in the temple. Jesus is, is not someone to mess with. And that's what we're seeing here. Jesus is, is so fired up because the people have taken a place where we were supposed to be able to come and experience and commune with God, and they corrupted it. He's fired up because he says, this is my Father's house. This is the temple. This is God's dwelling place here. And you are turning it into a shopping mall filled with greed and pride and selfishness. He's angry. And we need to recognize that sometimes Jesus gets angry about some things. And he gets angry about sin. And we need to pay attention to that. We can't slough that off. They turn the place of worship into something that doesn't resemble a place of worship at all. Now, I want to be really careful with my words here. But sometimes I wonder what Jesus would do if he walked into our gatherings. I think it's something that we, we do as leaders consider. Maybe not often enough we do think about it, though. What would, what would, would Jesus be pleased by how we gather? There's no animals here. There's no money changing here, so that's a good thing. We don't have that noise. But I know there's a lot of noise in our lives. I know that most of us are carrying at least one device that looks like this that has the ability to, to beep and notify us and let us know about all sorts of things that probably most of them don't even really matter. I know that living in Canmore, there are so many other things that are pulling at our attention every day. I mean, look out the windows. I think even uh, Norquay opened yesterday. Is that right? We got some snow. 
when we gather like this, whether it's here in the room or whether it's online as well, are we prepared to worship? Are, are we coming with, with quiet hearts ready to hear from the Lord? Or are we here just kind of checking the attendance box, hoping that the speaker wraps up soon so we can get on to the next thing? I shared this quote earlier in the week in our, in our Trinity Minute video, and it rattled me a bit, so I'm going to share it again here. Kent Hughes says, The way that we worship reveals what we think about God. See, I think if, if we just kind of arrive right on time, go through the motions and run out the door when Sean finally says amen at the end of the service and run on to the next thing, what's that saying about what we think about God? And listen, I don't get this right every week. God is good in reminding me that this morning was not necessarily a great morning even. Sometimes I show up tired, grumpy, stressed by a conflict with uh, maybe my wife or kids, or just sometimes my heart's not right when I show up on a Sunday morning. And listen, parents with young kids, I get it. There are some days there's just no getting out the door any earlier if you get out the door at all. Things blow up, stuff's happening, I, I get it. But again, I, I want to be careful and cautious and, and, and pastoral with my words here too. Parents, our, our kids are watching us. And that is terrifying so often. See, if, if our kids see our attitudes towards Sunday or even worship during the week, if they see our attitudes as, you know what, Sunday, getting there by 10.30, it's just too much effort. And you know what, studies actually show that this is especially true for dads. So men, we don't like, our culture doesn't like to say that there's differences between husbands and wives and dads and moms, but studies show that this is especially true for men. If we go through our lives and if our kids look at us when they're young and say, yeah, sure, they, they see us saying, we'll go to church Unless there's a big dump of snow, then, you know, it's, i got to scrape the car and shovel the sidewalk. Or, you know what, it's, it's Master Sunday, so maybe we'll just watch golf instead. It's, a super, it's Super Bowl. You know, this is, it's just a perfect day to get a few things done around the house. Our kids will learn from that. And then when they're old enough to decide for themselves what is important, they'll follow exactly what they saw as model. And we'll decide that, that worshiping on Sunday and all through the week just isn't that important. And I, I, I get that there's lots of reasons, lots of other reasons as well, why, why maybe kids walk away from church as they get a bit older. But as a youth worker at, in my last church and, and working with youth workers, I heard this from others and heard it in our church all the time where a parent would ask the youth pastor, why doesn't my kid want to go to church anymore? And so often, not always, of course, but so often, something, the, the, one of the main reasons was for 15 years, you showed your kid that church was important unless something else was more important. It's hockey season, it's golf season, it's vacation season, it's whatever season. The way we worship, the urgency and importance we put on worship reveals what we think about God. Matt Carter helpfully writes, Jesus thought correctly about God. He 
perfectly understood the holiness and the power and the authority of God. And that's why he was so passionate about God's house. He also notes, Matt Carter does, that in John 2, 16, Jesus says it's, it's my father's house, not our father's house. He says this choice of words implies that the men that were doing this were not actually children of God. He says, if you come to worship God each week and all you think about is yourself, how you can profit from religion, what you like or don't like, what you want or don't want, what bothers you or what satisfies you, then you may not be a child of God. He says, because God's people are in awe of him. God's people worship him. Coming to God in faith requires a turning from self-worship to true worship. And so he says, if each Sunday is a narcissistic activity of self-worship, then you and I, we are walking in the footsteps of the temple merchants. It's just a nice, calm, warm, fuzzy Sunday morning together, isn't it? John leaves us with something of an editorial note in verse 17 too. Again, he said that his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. John's quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9 here, where David cried out that, that he, he cried out in his zeal and commitment to the temple. And so, again, we're seeing David was a foreshadowing of Jesus, and Jesus is the true and better David, who is even more zealous for his house. Verse 18, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign will you show us for doing these things? You know what's fascinating about this question that the Jews ask Jesus? It's what they don't ask him. Remember, Jesus has just walked into a gathering, something they've probably been doing for a long time to have the animals and the money changers and all this stuff there. This wasn't the first Sunday this, or Saturday this happened or whatever, right? This, this was probably a long-standing thing that was going on. He comes in, he drives out the animals, he flips the tables, and they don't ask, what are you thinking? What are you doing? It's, it's not right that you're doing this. It's not just that you're doing this. Was that really necessary? They ask, what sign will you show us that it's okay that you do this? I wonder if maybe in this moment they're, they're, they're catching on to the scriptures as well. They would, the Jews would have known the Old Testament well. Maybe they're feeling a little bit of conviction in the moment. They seem to, to recognize that Jesus isn't just some random radical that's strolling in and flipping tables now, but he seems to do these things and speak and act with authority, authority that they couldn't grab and couldn't quite pin down and understand. And so they ask for a sign. They ask what gives him the right to do this, whose authority he's acting in, and, and Jesus offers them a sign, all right? Look at verse 19. It says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And Jesus said, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? Of course, we read he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore, John writes, that he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Jesus is getting absolutely explicit in what he's been talking about kind of around the edges so far. Just like the sacrifices were a foreshadowing of Jesus coming as the perfect sacrifice, the temple itself, this building that they had created, was a foreshadowing of Jesus coming to replace the temple with himself, with his own life. And so the religious leaders ask for a sign to demonstrate his authority, and Jesus says, knock down this symbol, and I'll get back up, and I'll show you what it was meant to be. 
But the Jews, the religious leaders, leaders they'd, they'd already missed the sign. The sign was, in fact, Jesus' zeal for his house. That's why we've got these editorial comments in verse 17 and at the end in 21 and 22 as well, speaking of the temple of his body. But now how do we connect Jesus' body to temple? How do we understand with, with our hindsight, because we get to look back into this text, what Jesus was talking about? I think there's, there's two ways we can see Jesus stepping into this temple. First, remember, the temple was where heaven met earth, where, where God dwelt and, and met with humanity. Do you remember John 1.14, what, what he wrote there? And the word took on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled among us. See, through the person of Jesus, God has revealed himself and come to man in a new way, a much greater way than this one singular temple. The second thing is the temple was, again, where, where sacrifices were made for sin, but Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. He's the once-for-all sacrifice, so he himself has fulfilled the need for a sacrificial system forever. The sign, though, wasn't just these things, although Jesus was God in the flesh walking among us. He was the once-for-all perfect sacrifice. But the sign was Jesus' resurrection after three days. I love that song, that, that, that morning of the promise when Jesus' buried body started to breathe. The sign was that Jesus would be resurrected after the, the leaders had torn down his body. See, if Jesus has authority over death itself, he's got authority over this building, over the temple as well. I love how one writer notes for us, after Jesus' death and before his resurrection, his disciples are terrified. In fact, we'll see in chapter 20 that they've locked themselves in an upper room and they are hopeless and defeated. But then the resurrected Jesus appears to them and everything changes in an instant. They connect all that he said before with now what he's done and they realize that Jesus had been planning and preparing this for them all along. That's why John keeps throwing these notes in like verse 22. As we head towards a close, remember where we started. Jesus, angry at corruption and sin and pride and brokenness. He doesn't respond to any of these things, to sin as, as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, does he? He's, he's angry. The Bible talks about the wrath of God coming as punishment towards sin. His, his anger comes from the fact that, that Jesus knows we have an enemy that wants to lead us away from God and lead us into sin that, that separates us from God. But Jesus knows that sin destroys us and he wants what's best for us. He wants to see our flourishing. We're going to get to John 10, 10 in uh, some time. But remember, John 10, 10 says, listen, the thief, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come for what? To bring life life to the full. In our modern, postmodern culture, we, we don't like angry God. We don't like that there might be consequences for our actions. We just kind of want God who is love, who loves me no matter what. And though there is some truth to that, that God is love and he loves us no matter what, and we're going to see just how much God loved the world in chapter 3, that doesn't mean sin is acceptable. The idea of angry God and God's wrath have turned away many people from Jesus, but I think, sadly, to turn away just at the concept of God being angry is to miss the point. 
Again, Matt Carter helpfully sums up this passage and this idea this way. He says, hearing about God's anger at sin could lead a person to despair. It can drive people away. But the next part of the passage tells us about Jesus' death and resurrection. If people refuse to turn from self-worship, then they should despair because God's white-hot anger will be turned on them when they stand before him one day. But Jesus died. His body was torn down and he rose again so that they might find joy and hope in him. His His death turned God's anger away. And if they believe in him, if we believe in him, God will pardon them and give them life. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that, God's love, that God loves to make beauty out of brokenness. And that is good news for broken people. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time to, to hear from you from your word. I, I ask that you would, would point out areas in my life and in our lives where our worship is selfish. I ask that you might even uh, clear the temple in my heart, if you will, so that I can know you and be with you. Jesus, forgive me for the ways in my life that I've let pride or selfishness or greed or envy or whatever get in the way of worship. I need to turn down the noise. Maybe this morning you're you're checking us out for the first time or tuning in for the first time and, and you want to know more about Jesus. I'd love to chat with you. If you're watching online, you can click that live prayer button as well. Maybe, maybe through this morning, God has been stirring in your heart as we've talked about temple, about this place where heaven and earth intersect. And maybe the, the idea that, that there's a right and a wrong and that Jesus gets angry and, and, and the destruction and, and corruption of sin is, is doing something in your heart. Maybe today is the day where, where God's made it clear that he is for you and he loves you and he wants what's best for you. He wants to give you abundant life. And like a, like a perfect parent, his nose are always for our protection and he's not holding out on us by setting guidelines and guardrails for us. Maybe today's the day where you want to stop going your own way and start trusting God to lead you in his way. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out, but today might be the day where you want to commit to following Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the Son of God, perfect in every way, who walked this world, who, who dwelt among us, who moved into the neighborhood to, to show us how to have a right relationship with God and creation and one another. He was perfectly obedient to God in every way, even to the point of death on the cross in our place as the perfect sacrifice. And then he rose three days later, conquering Satan, sin, and death for us. Why did he do this? So that anyone who calls on his name would be saved and forgiven and transformed. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark your life feels. When you call on Jesus' name, he hears your pray, prayer and he forgives you and makes you new. If today's your day to commit to Jesus and you're on our church online page, there's going to be a little raise hand button there and invite you to click that and let us reach out and celebrate with you. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you can head over to trinitycamera.com slash commit and we can celebrate with you there. And let's pray these things together. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Change me and make me new. Help me to follow you. Jesus, be my Savior the Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit so that I can serve you, so that I can follow you, so that I can make you known. My life is not my own. I give it to you. 
I thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.